Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come before you this morning. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which you have promised would guide us into all truth. And so we ask for his presence right now in our hearts, in our minds, and may you speak to us, each one, individually, and may we discern your voice, for I ask this in the precious and almighty name of Jesus, and let everyone say, amen, amen. Turn your Bibles to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel book in the Bible, John chapter one, that's where we're going to start this morning. What is the topic this morning? What is the topic this morning? Immune to the gospel, John chapter 1. Now, you have come to a conference that is called Impact, Impact Scandinavia. And I believe that each of you have come with a desire to be able to impact people around you. You want to impact your friends. You want to impact your family. You want to impact your colleagues. You want to be an a, a, a ambassador for Christ. You want to impact others. And yet in order for us to impact others, first we ourselves have to be impacted. Amen? And what I want to talk about this morning, what I want to study with you this morning is how we can be impacted by the gospel. Not just once, not just twice, but on a day-to-day experience, a day-to-day momentarily experience of being impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that if you would pour out your heart to me tonight, this morning, that there would be many of you this morning that would recognize that in your life you need to be impacted. That you are, maybe you are struggling with things that no one else knows about, but deep inside you have a longing to walk closer with God. And there's, there are things in your life that have pushed you away and you want to be impacted because you come here and you get inspired. And yesterday evening we talked about all the city missions and, and what our church is doing on a global level. And I'm sure that your, your heart is burning within you and you want to be involved. But at the same time, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I need to be impacted. Yes, I want to be an impact to those around me. But first of all, I need to be a deeper, on a deeper level impacted by the message of Scripture. I think many of you will be able to relate to what I will be saying this morning. And I want to look at three areas when it comes to the impact that God makes on us. I want to look, first of all, at the um, first encounter with Christ. In other words, the first impact, meeting Jesus. What I secondly want to look at is how it is so common and so easy to lose that impact. So we're going to look at getting the impact, then we're going to look at losing the impact, and then thirdly, we're going to look at regaining the impact. So meeting Jesus for the first time, what do we go through? What do we experience? That first love, that vigor, that energy. But what many times happens in the course of our Christian experience, we lose that and we become immune to the gospel. We hear it, but it no longer impacts us. And so we want to look at the first encounter with Christ, losing that focus, and then how do we regain and retain that spiritual experience? These are the three areas that we're going to look at this morning. Are you ready? So we're going to start with that first encounter with Christ, that first love, that encounter with the gospel, and we go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we're going to read about the experience of Nathanael. I just love this story, and I pray that we may dig deep into this story 
And I believe that many of you are going to be able to relate to the experience of the disciple Nathanael. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. The Bible says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And follow me, that was the invitation to discipleship. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip decides to follow Jesus. Now, verse 45, not only does Philip decide to follow Jesus, but immediately he is now going to extend this invitation to someone else. And that is Nathanael. And this is, this is where we really get into our story here. So verse 45, look at what it says. Philip found Nathanael, and a little bit on in the story, we find out that he was sitting under a fig tree. So I just wanted you to get that mental picture for a moment. Nathanael is sitting under a fig tree, and Philip is looking for him, and then he finds his dear friend, Nathanael, and he comes up to him, and listen to what he says. John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. Capital H. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now you need to understand the impact of that statement. What is Philip actually saying? What is he actually saying to Nathanael that is sitting there under that fig tree? He is saying that they have found the son of God. That they have found the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, the Jews had been looking forward to the Messiah for hundreds of years. There had been prophets that had come and gone and they had written of a coming Messiah. There was this great anticipation of, of, of the Messiah coming. And now Philip says to Nathanael, you know what, Nathanael? We found him. We found him. This was not just some little statement to make. This was revolutionary. And yet, what does Philip add to that statement? He says, you know, we have found him, Jesus. What else does he say? Of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the moment that that, that he puts in that phrase, of Nazareth, something is going through the mind of Nathanael. What is going through the mind of Nathanael? You know, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, if we're looking for the Messiah, shouldn't we be looking at the capital like Jerusalem? Or shouldn't we be looking at some other place? I mean, certainly the Messiah cannot come out of Nazareth. Look at, look, look at his response there in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth. Now, Nathanael is not saying this in an obnoxious way. Nathanael, as a matter of fact, when you look deep at the story, was a sincere seeker for truth. He is sitting under the fig tree, and there are many things that are going through his mind. This was a favorite place where he would be. And you know what? Um, the desire of ages so beautifully portrays that, that as Philip comes to Nathanael, Nathanael is at that moment just considering whether or not Jesus is really the Messiah. And he's going through it in his mind, thinking about the Old Testament prophecies, thinking about the evidence of the ministry of Jesus. And he's thinking to himself, can Jesus really be the promised Messiah? 
And so Philip comes and he says, we have found him. We have found him. Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, and not fully decided in his mind, Nathanael answers and said, says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He is not quite sure. There is still this objection in his mind. That is the fact, can really this be the Messiah? I mean, he comes from Nazareth. And Philip responds in such a remarkable way that, by the way, if we're going to learn how to do evangelism, if we're going to learn how to reach out to people, this answer is just, it blows your mind. What does he say? Come and see. Now, just think about that for a moment. Philip could have sat down next to Nathanael, and they could have spent the rest of that day talking about the evidence why Jesus could actually come from Nazareth and be the Messiah, right? They could have spent the whole day, and Philip, maybe at the end of the day, maybe, could have removed that argument out of the mind of Nathanael. And yet, even if he could uh, remove that objection out of the mind of Nathanael, would Nathanael be one step closer to his Savior? No, no. No, he would still be under the fig tree. And so Philip says to Nathanael, come and see. My friends, when you reach out to people around you, they are going to have objections against our faith. And those objections can be many. They can have an objection as to the fact that why is there so much suffering in the world if God is a God of love? That's a question that you meet many times. Others can have the objection of, 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 of faith. How, how does this work? I don't know how this works. Others can say, well, I don't believe in a resurrection. How can that happen? Others will say, well, I don't understand the Godhead. Uh, there are many objections that people have in which they don't want to make that step to know Jesus because they have those objections. And what we many times do is we sit down and we stay under the fig tree. And we try to figure it out. And we try to put God and we, and we analyze him and, and we use the scriptures. And there is a place for this, to study these topics. Of course there is. But my friends, there is something that goes even deeper. And that's an invitation to experience a personal savior. What do you say? Now, you know, I'm a public evangelist and I travel around the world and and I defend the teachings of scripture. So so I I love apologetics. I love the doctrines that we have as, as an Adventist movement. But at the same time, I realize that removing objections in the mind of a person is not necessarily bringing them any closer to an experience and relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what we need to do as a people is not just to study the scriptures, but to invite people into a living, personal experience and relationship with Jesus. What do you say? And this is exactly what Nathaniel, what Philip does. He says, come and see. And I can imagine, you know, uh, sometimes I just imagine kind of things into the scripture. You got to be careful with that. But we, we, we're allowed to like, you know, vividly think about what this story must have been like. And, and I can imagine what is going through the mind of, of, of Nathanael when, when Philip said, come and see. He's like, yeah, but I have questions. You know, but I have questions. And, and, and Philip is like, well, bring them to Jesus. Bring your questions to Jesus. He can handle that. And so... Together, they get up from under the fig tree and they go to Jesus. And I want you to take notice what happens next. This is, this is so beautiful. John chapter 1, look at verse 47. Verse 47. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. Just imagine the picture. Jesus is there. Nathanael and Philip are walking towards him. Maybe there's still something going on in the mind of, of Nathanael. He's now making that step. He's going to try. He's going to see if Jesus is really the Messiah. He's willing to, to, to actually meet Jesus here. Maybe there's stim, still something going on in his mind that, that can he really be from, from Nazareth? And, and as he's walking towards Jesus, look at what Jesus says. Verse 47, second part of the verse. Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. In other words, Jesus recognizes the honesty of Nathanael. The honesty to bring his questions with him. His honesty to get up from under the fig tree and actually try and actually come to Jesus, wanting that relationship. And so Jesus says, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And, and, and this, just, this just really kind of like, for a moment, it startles Nathanael. Look at what it says. Nathanael said to him, verse 48, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I saw you. And at this moment, uh, Nathanael is completely, completely enraptured in these words of Jesus. And look at what he says in verse 49. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. At this moment, there is no question in the mind of Nathanael any longer. This is the son of God. This is the king of Israel. Why? Why? Not because the objection about Nazareth has been removed. No, the reason why he now acknowledges him as king and savior of the world is because Jesus knew him. Jesus knows you. Amen? Jesus knows you. I mean, if there's anything that, that is going to move you towards your Savior, uh, it's not the removal of another objection or question that you have in your mind. And certainly, you know, the biggest difference between you and a person that does not know Christ is not that you don't have any questions and they do have questions about faith. That's not the difference. Because many of you, for a matter of fact, have brought your questions into your faith. But the difference is that you know him. You know him. And it's only in the framework of this personal relationship with Jesus that those questions can be answered. Amen? You must come to him. Oh, if we could just ponder those words, Jesus knows you. He knows me. I mean, God, the God of the universe that created the worlds, that created the stars and that knows their name, that, that keeps the worlds and the planets in their orbit, that has created the magnificent, magnificent heavens. He knows you. He knows you. He knows you by name. He knows everything about you. He knows where you were born. He knows the circumstances of your life. He knows your deepest trials, your deepest difficulties, and your greatest joys. He knows every thought that you ever have thought and think right now. He knows you. And the fact that he knows you is, 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 is in a way, we become so vulnerable. You know, we, it says in Hebrews that we become naked before his, his eyes. But at the same time, he draws us to himself into this loving relationship. And he says to us, I am your savior. I am your God. And Nathanael 
completely, completely enraptured in the words of Jesus, cries out, cries out to Jesus, you are the son of God. This was this first impact, the first impact in the life of Nathanael. The fact, the understanding that Jesus knew him, the understanding that God knew him, and he embraced the gospel. He embraced the person Jesus. Oh, this is a strong impact. And many of you can relate to this as you think about the first time that you heard about the gospel. And even if you've grown up in a Christian home, the first time that really for that, that it dawned on you actually what it's all about. Maybe you heard it, you know, throughout your life. But just that moment, you know what that is. That moment that you thought, wow, this is real. God loves me. God exists. He created me. He sent his son to die for me. He knows me. Oh, I want to belong to him. And you just cry out. Like Nathanael cried out. That's the first impact, the first love. And my friends, you've got to hold on to that. And yet it's so easy to let go of that. It is so easy to become immune to the gospel, to become indifferent to the gospel. And so we move into our, our, our second step here. We've, we've looked at that first impact, the, the impact of Nathaniel, the impact that all of, you, uh, all of us need to experience in knowing God and understanding that he knows us and understanding what he has done for us. But how often do we lose that impact? How often do we become indifferent to the gospel? Let's see how that happens. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. We turn from the book of John to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua in the Old Testament. Chapter 24, last chapter of that book. You all know who Joshua is, I hope. Joshua was that great man that led the people of Israel. The Hebrews into the promised land. Remember, Moses led them out of Egypt, but he was not privileged to lead them into the promised land. That was the task of none other but Joshua. And so Joshua, as he's leading the people, or rather has led them into the promised land, and he's now old and he's about to die, but he wants to make sure that the people are committed to the truth that are committed to God and, and that they will remember what God has done for them. And so this is his last speech here in Joshua chapter 24. And look at what he says to the people. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, beginning in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the land you dwell, uh, sorry, on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So here Joshua is presenting the two options before the people. And he is, he is encouraging them to follow the Lord, the Lord that has guided them till this very day. And, and look, look what it says as the people answer in verse 16. Verse 16. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us 
and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. The people are committed. They know who they want to serve. And, you know, and fresh in their minds is God's guidance as they have, with a small amount of people, relatively small amount of people, moved into Canaan and God has given them victory after victory after victory after victory. And now they possess the land. And as they possess the land, Joshua stands before the people. His task is done. He's about to, 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 to uh, go to sleep until the resurrection. His task is finished. And he says to the people, now, these are the two options that you have. You can serve God or you can serve, you know, the other gods of the nations. And the people say, oh, we know what we're going to do. We're going to serve God. I mean, he has guided us. We have seen his miracles. We will follow him. And yet, as you trace the history of Israel, as you trace the history of the Hebrews, you will find that it goes up and down and, and it has its bright moments, but sad, sadly to say it has more um, uh, moments in which they departed from the will and way of God, in which they became immune and indifferent to the gospel. And so I want to fast forward the story here a little bit and I want to bring you to a moment in which there was a spiritual and also a physical drought in the land of Israel. A time in which the people had become indifferent to the message of God and to the truth of God. And so turn with me from the book of Joshua to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18. And we are going to the story of Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18. And looking at verse 21, and I'm going to picture, I'm going to try to picture the uh, situation here, the scenario here. Um, there had been drought in the land for three and a half years. Uh, there's both a physical drought, but also a spiritual drought. The people had been worshiping the gods of the nations around them. They had become indifferent to the messenger of God. Uh, and what happened was Elijah called them all together on Mount Carmel. You will remember this. They're all gathered together on Mount Carmel. The people uh, the Baal prophets, the king, and there the prophet of God, Elijah. He seemed to be the only one left that was faithful to God. And so the multitudes of people are gathered together. And Elijah gets up as the prophet of God, and he's now going to challenge them. He's now going to ask them to make a decision. They can't halter between two opinions. They need to decide whether they follow God or not. Take notice of the words of Elijah, First Kings chapter 18. And verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, do what? Follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Now, look at what it says next. Here, Elijah's challenging them. Make a decision. I mean, if God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And look at what it says next. Verse 21, last part of the verse. But the people what? They did exactly what you're doing now. But the people what? Answered him not a word. Please answer me. Answered him not a word. Now, why didn't they answer? Because they had become indifferent to the message of God. 
There was a spiritual drought. They no longer uh, studied the writings of the prophets. They no longer dedicated their lives to God. And so here they are, standing before Elijah. Elijah, the mighty prophet, says, make a decision. And they don't say, we're going to worship Baal. That would have been better. And neither do they say, we're going to worship God. They just stare at him and don't say a word. And, and there's this indifference. And you know the rest of the story. The Baal prophets uh, or Elijah challenges them that the God that answers by fire is the true God. And so the prophets of Baal, they dance around their, their altar and they cut themselves and they cry out to Baal. And he doesn't answer. And then Elijah kneels down. And he takes 12 stones, which is a symbol of the uniting of the tribes of Israel. And he puts them together and he prays this simple prayer to God. And God answers him with fire from heaven and it consumes the altar. It consumes that which is on the altar, the altar, and all the water that is around the altar. It consumes everything. There's no doubt now who is God. And yet this moment of indifference is a moment that we find ourselves so many times in. As a matter of fact, I want to read to you a short passage here. Um, this is a comment from Ellen White on this story. On this story of Elijah. Listen to what she says. She says, Elijah cries, how long holds she between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Not one in that vast assembly dared utter one word for God and show his loyalty to Jehovah. What astonishing deception and fearful blindness had like a dark cloud covered Israel. This blindness and apostasy had not, had not closed about them suddenly. Listen very carefully. It had not just come suddenly. It had come upon them gradually. What's the word there? Gradually. It had come upon them gradually as they had not heeded the word of reproof and warning which the Lord had sent to them because of their pride and their sins. And now in this fearful crisis, in the presence of the idolatrous priests and the apostate king, they remained neutral. If God abhors one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, it is doing nothing in the case of emergency. Indifference and neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. This is strong language. I mean, if there is one sin that is above another sin, it is neutrality and indifference in a religious crisis. Let me ask you, ask you something this morning. In our religious world today, are we in a crisis, yes or no? And the question is, are we indifferent? Are we indifferent? Are we neutral? You see, it's one thing to be against apostasy and against false doctrine and against um, all paths that lead away from truth. But it's something else to actually stand up and speak the truth. It's one thing to believe in your heart. You know what that person is saying? Or you know what is happening there in my local church? Or you know what is happening there or there is actually not really right. But you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bother someone. I don't want to offend someone. So let me just remain silent. The Bible tells us, spirit of prophecy tells us that this is hostility against God. You have a voice and you have a voice for a reason. Amen. 
And that reason is to avoid, is to proclaim the truth. Now, not in an obnoxious way, not in an offensive way. We need to speak with love. We need to have our, our lips seasoned with the grace of God. We need to be careful with when we say things and how we say things. It's not that that I'm dealing with here. But there's one thing that we need to know, and that is we're in a religious crisis, and we cannot remain silent any longer. What do you say? We are in the very situation of Elijah. The story of Elijah is a story for us today. You know, it's interesting. A little bit later, when Jezebel threatens to take the life of Elijah, you remember the story, Elijah flees to the Mount Horeb. And, and, and when he's there, God, you know, uh, speaks to him with that still small voice. And, you know, Elijah, he says, you know, I'm the only one left. Do you remember what God answers him? There are how many? 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. Now, let me ask you a question. Where were those 7,000 when Elijah said, how long will you halt between two opinions on Mount uh, Carmel? Where were they? Where were the 7,000 then? I mean, it says they, there were 7,000 that had not knelt down to Baal. Yes, they, did it. They, didn't, didn't, they didn't kneel down to Baal, but they didn't speak the truth in a religious crisis either. You see, my friends, it is one thing not to follow, to follow things that are contrary to God's word. It's one thing to, to engage in falsehood, but it's another thing, or not to engage in falsehood, but it's another thing to actually voice the truth. Amen? And that is what God is calling us to do. You have been given a voice, and that voice is a precious gift from God so that you can lead people into a knowledge of God and a knowledge of his truth. Indifference causes us to play defense instead of offense. Indifference causes us to play defense instead of offense. Now, you don't become immune to the gospel or immune to the truth of God overnight. That doesn't happen. How did it happen in the days of Elijah? Do you remember the word? Gradually. Gradually it happens. You start missing your devotions and your prayer life becomes thanking God for food. You start watching things you did not watch before. You start listening to things that you did not listen to before. You start going places that you didn't go to before. And sooner and sooner than you think, you lose that first impact and you become indifferent. And you become indifferent. You become immune to the gospel. And then you wonder why when you read the Bible, it doesn't speak to you anymore. And then you wonder when you hear a sermon that it no longer impacts you. It is because you have, you have made yourself by your active decisions neutral to the gospel. Now, this is also what happened not only in the days of Elijah, but in various moments in the history of God's people. I want to show you another moment. This is so, this is startling, this one. I want you to turn to the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33 and chapter uh, verse 30. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 30. Now, Ezekiel was a mighty prophet of God. 
He was amongst the captives um, in Babylon, uh, living at the same time as Daniel the prophet was serving in the court. He was amongst the captives there in Babylon. And uh, this was a time also of spiritual drought. The reason why they were in Babylon is because they had departed from the ways of God. And so what Ezekiel is doing is he is speaking the word of God and trying to encourage the people and strengthen them so that they again can embrace their identity in the fear of the Lord. And so I want you to take notice of how the people talk about Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel chapter 33, beginning in verse 30. Look at what it says. This is, this is God speaking to Ezekiel. And God says, as for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of their houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Now, if we would just stop there, that would be great. That would be great, wouldn't it be? That's great. Like Ezekiel is speaking the word of God and all the people in their homes and to their friends are saying, you know, you got to come and hear the word of God. It's great. It's amazing. And, and just come. This is just a revelation from God. If we would have stopped here, this would be a great story. But the story doesn't stop here. Look what it says in verse 31. God speaking to Ezekiel here. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words. But what does it say next in your Bible? But they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart pursue their own gain. Look at verse 32. Look at how God describes what is going on here. He says, indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument for they hear your words, but they what? They do not do them. This is the situation in the days of Ezekiel. The people are saying to each other, yes, you need to come and hear the word of God. You need to come and hear Ezekiel. And God says, you know what, Ezekiel? You are like an instrument and it plays very well. The people love to come and hear you, but there's a problem. They come and hear you, but they don't do the word of God. They don't follow my words. They love to come to conferences. They love to be inspired by sermons. They love to hear you, but they don't follow the word. There was a, there was a time of, of indifference in the days of Ezekiel. But I want you to notice that indifference is not only when you're not serving God. You can be indifferent when you serve God. You can be in all the right, you can follow all the right motions of going to church, of coming to a conference, and still in your heart you can be as indifferent as anything. When the words are only falling, going into one ear and going out of the other. If we don't follow the word of God, if we don't make it a practical experience, we are repeating the history of the days of Ezekiel. Now, how was it then in the days of Jesus? I want you to turn from the book of Ezekiel to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And don't worry, we're going to close this message on a good note. So, but we need to first establish what indifference uh, is and and, and how we are in the danger of becoming indifferent to the gospel. And, And frankly, I believe that many of us here have become indifferent to the gospel. And so this is a message for each one of us. Matthew chapter 11, what about in the days of Jesus? Well, uh, just before Jesus came onto the public scene, there was a forerunner of Jesus. What was his name? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the mighty preacher of truth. 
It says that, do you know what the Bible says? It says, all Jerusalem came out to hear him. Can you imagine? I mean, they were thronging to hear John speak. Now, as Jesus kind of sums up his ministry, take notice what he says about John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. Jesus speaking here. And he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, listen to this, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, you know, it's interesting. There was a prophet, another prophet by the name of Malachi, which, was, which lived about 400 years before Jesus. And he prophesied that the spirit of Elijah was going to return. And, and Jesus, uh, describing the ministry of John the Baptist, says, you know, if you were looking for that spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist, he had it. I mean, he, he moved, he preached in the power of Elijah. But you know what? The situation of Elijah, the situation of indifference and neutrality also existed in the ministry of John the Baptist. Take notice of what it says next. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 16. But to what, Jesus speaking, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. What is Jesus saying? There is not an appropriate response. There is no joy. There is no sorrow. There is an indifference and a neutrality. They played the flute and no one danced. There, 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 there is a, a message of sorrow. No one, no one is sorrowful. There is an inappropriate response to the gospel presented by John. There was an inappropriate response to the message of Ezekiel. There was an inappropriate response to the message of Elijah. And the question is, is there an inappropriate response to messages today in this generation? What do you think? I believe there's a big danger of that. I mean, we cannot praise ourselves and think that we're, oh, we're so different today. And every time the gospel is presented, I am moved and I'm, 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 I'm changed. Now, many times it goes in one ear and it goes out the other ear. Many times we, we, hear a, we hear sermons about what Jesus has done for us. We can hear a hundred sermons of what Jesus has done for us without asking the simple question, what can I do for him? And we become indifferent and neutral to a message that God sends. You know, I I titled this message. What did I title this message? Answer me, please, please. Encourage me. Immune to the gospel. You know, it's like getting a flu shot. It's like getting a flu shot. The vaccination exposes you in some degree to the virus and sickness. So your body responds by providing induced immunity. You know how this works, right? Right? You get a little bit of, you get a little bit of the virus when you get inject, that injection so that your body provides this induced, um, uh, this induced, um, what was it? Immunity. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Now, now listen to this. This is how it works. But with us, the gospel has been treated like the virus. Okay? The gospel has been treated like the virus. And we have been exposed to just enough of the gospel that it no more affects us, right? Just get, it, just get enough. Just hear it enough times that Jesus died for us. Just hear it enough times what Jesus had done for us. We hear it so many times that it's like a flu shot. It's like a flu shot. I've become immune to it. Immune to the gospel. 
It no longer affects us. And again, we can hear hundreds of sermons about Jesus and what he did for us. And just because we've heard it so many times throughout our upbringing, so many times in our Christian experience, it no longer touches us at the deep level that it should. And I mean, we should become afraid. We should be fearful of becoming immune. And and the question is, what can we do about that? Well, we're going to look at that in just a moment. Because when you are first impacted by the gospel, when you first met your God and your Savior, like Nathanael, coming from under that fig tree and understanding that, that, that he is the one that created you, that he is the one that redeemed you, that he knows everything about you. You cried out that he is the Son of God. You dedicated your life to him. You wanted to follow him with every viber of your being. But in the course of your experience, you lost that first love. I'm sure that many of you can relate to what I'm saying. In the course of this, you became indifferent to the message of God. You became neutral. You could hear sermons and they used to affect you on a deep level, but now they no longer affect you. You used to hear truth and you say, oh, what can I do to be saved? You would cry out. And yet now, you just ask, what time is lunch? Immune to the gospel. We've got the shot, the flu shot. And we no longer respond. You know, this was not always the case in the scriptures. We have stories where there was definitely uh, moments where the people responded. As a matter of fact, you know what is interesting? Those that heard the gospel for the first time, they responded. You know, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Acts. You know why? It's so non-neutral. You know, you read through the book of Acts and, and, and Paul goes out and he preaches and either he raises a church or he gets kicked out of the city. I mean, there's no, there's no middle ground. He comes into a city and he's going to plant the banner of Jesus. Either they love him or they hate him. Why? Because his message did not allow for neutrality. Amen? It didn't allow for neutrality. He preached and people that heard the gospel for the first time, they were moved and either they, they, they moved towards the gospel or they say, hey, let's get rid of this guy. No neutrality. And you read through the chapters of the book of Acts and it's just powerful. One of my favorite books in the Bible. You know, at one point in time, you, this is kind of a story that's kind of tucked away in the book of Acts and you really need to look carefully and read carefully to get it. And it's kind of pictured in different chapters. But there's this young man by the name of John Mark. And, and he lives in Jerusalem together with his mother. And I can imagine that the, 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 this, um, the apostles, as they got together in Jerusalem, they would share the reports of what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. And so John Mark, he gets a taste of this work. You know, the mission reports there, and, and these people we saved, and, and we went there, and, and the slides are running. And, and John Mark is watching this thing. You know, I want to sign up for this thing. And so he says, can I join you, Paul, on a mission trip? Now, what would it be like to go on a mission trip with Paul. How many of you would love to do that? Are you sure? (laughs) Are you sure? You would like to go on a mission trip with Paul? I mean, John Mark says, hey, sign me up. And so he gets on the boat and he goes with Paul and they're like, they're like preaching and he's like, he's like, whoa. And the people are like getting angry with, with Paul and they're kicking him out of the city and they're kicking John out of the city. And he thinks to himself, I didn't sign up for this. 
And so he decides to go home and he goes back to his mother in Jerusalem. Now, the story ends up well because later, you know, later he wants to go on another trip and and Paul says, no way, no way, you're not coming with us. And Barnabas says, you know, let's give him a second chance. And the strife between Paul and Barnabas is so great that Barnabas says, you know, I'll just go with John Mark and you take someone else. And so they actually uh, separate their ways, Barnabas and Paul. Now, later on, you can read in the New Testament um, uh, books of Paul that he actually did appreciate John Mark. Because later when he was imprisoned in Rome, guess who he wanted to come? John Mark. So things that turned out very well in the end. But the fact of the matter is it was not easy in those first, in that first century to proclaim the gospel. You know, you, you can imagine Paul, you know, at one point he is stoned. Can you imagine all the, all of them are standing around this pile of rocks, this pile of stones. It's like, I, I guess the thing is over now. And, and then the stones start moving. You know, and, and Paul gets up. Let's go to the next town and preach. Can you imagine? I mean, they would say to Paul, you know, he was like the kind of guy that you could never affect, that you could never, like, stop. They would say, you know, we're going to kill you. He would say, to die is gain. Uh, to, yeah, to die is gain. They would say, we'll keep you alive to live as Christ. They would say, we're going to beat you. Well, I, I, I think that the sufferings are, are, are in this time are not worthy to, compa- to be compared with the glory that is coming. You know, okay, we're going to put you in prison. Well, I'll sing and convert the guards. I mean, you could not affect this guy. Whatever you did to him, he always had a way to bring the gospel to the next level. And it was non-neutral, a non-neutral gospel. You know, actually, (laughs) the only place, the only place where there was really this neutrality and difference was in the city of Athens. And it's very interesting. He comes to the city of Athens and he's been to all these places and in some cities he's been kicked out. In other places, they started a church. Great. Either kicked out or started a church. Kicked out or started a church. And he just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And he thinks the same is going to happen in the city of Athens. So he arrives in the city of Athens and here are all the sophisticated and educated philosophers of the, of the Greek empire. It was the Roman Empire, but it was really a Greek philosophy that had been infused by the Romans in order to keep the empire together. Greek philosophy, Greek way of thinking. This was all permeated throughout the, throughout the empire. And so Paul gets up, and, and you know the story there in Acts chapter 17. Why don't you turn there real quickly as he comes to the city of Athens. Look at what he does. Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 16, it says... The book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 16, Paul is in the city of Athens and he says, and it says the following, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. You know, he just goes to work. He says, okay, he's preaching in the marketplace. He's preaching in in the churches, in the synagogues, and he's just seeking to find people that will embrace the gospel. And yet these sophisticated, educated Greek philosophers and Greek-minded people are not so sure about the message of Paul. And so Paul, uh, going down to, to verse 22, as he, they, he, they give him an opportunity to speak. And so they bring him into this great arena, the Oropagus. And I just want to imagine, you'd imagine for a moment, Paul is, is, is standing there before hundreds, maybe thousands of people in Athens. And then he says in verse 22, 
Paul stood in the midst of the Arapagus and said, Many of, men of Athens, I perceive that in, the, in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And in a marvelous way, in a, in a very unique way, what he does is he takes that, that one idol that they had with the inscription to the unknown God, amongst all the other idols, he, he takes that phrase and he presents to them the God that they don't know. And, you know, we don't have time to go through all of this, but you read Acts chapter 17. It's so powerful. He presents that this unknown, this unknown God for them, this God that is really the only God that exists, is above all the other gods that they think are real. Because this God dwells in a temple made without hands. This God is above creation. And, and then he goes on that this God is the creator God. And not only is he the creator God, but he, that he personally knows them, that he knows the way, the, where they were born and the circumstances of their life. And then Paul says, he's not very far from you. You can reach out to him. And the people are just like sitting there and like listening and like, oh, yeah, we don't know about this. What are we? Uh, oh, interesting. And then he gets to the point where he talks about the resurrection of Jesus and that actually there is actually a judge uh, in this world, and that there's a moral responsibility that we have. And when he gets to that point, it gets a little tricky. They don't really think, they don't really, really like that part. And you know what they say? They don't get up and kick him out. But look at what it says in verse, um, drop down to the end of the chapter, verse, uh, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 32. Look at what it says. 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. You know, uh, interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll hear you again uh, on this matter. The equivalent in our days, thanks for the sermon. See you next month. Right? Thanks for the sermon. <laughs> Great sermon. Oh, love the sermon. When can we, you come back next month? Thanks. Okay. See you next month. You know, this was the neutrality and indifference of the city of Athens. My friends, we live in a Greek world. We live in a world of indifference. We live in a world where people, you know, you know what? It's, Paul sums up the experience of the people in Athens. Look at, look at verse 21. This is, this is incredible. Acts chapter 17, verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Do you know anyone that, that uses their time in nothing else but either to hear or to tell some new thing? You know, we want to hear new stuff and we want to evaluate everything. We want to kind of get all the input, but we're not going to make a decision. Come on. We're not going to make a decision. We're not going to respond to it. We just hear it. We love hearing new stuff. And so Paul comes along and we have already thousands of idols. So if he has something to say, okay, let's put him in the Arapagus. Let's listen to him. Some mock, some said, okay, we'll hear him again on this matter. Neutrality and indifference. My friends, we are living in a Greek world today. A world of neutrality and indifference. It is a danger that we not only face, that our world faces, but it's a danger which our church faces. It is a danger which you and I face. And then we come to our last part in this message, and that is, what are we going to do about it? You know, we've looked at the first impact of meeting Christ, that first uh, enthusiasm and engagement. We've looked at, at how we can lose that impact and how we can become indifferent and neutral. But finally, we want to close this on a good note. How can I retain the impact? How can I be uh, so filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that it will impact me over and over and over again. Not some high emotional impact, but an abiding trust in my Savior. Amen? Let's look at how this happens. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation, last book in your Bible, chapter 3, and beginning in verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And this is, as many of you will be familiar with, the message to the church of Laodicea. This is a special message to the church, which, con- which uh, consists of you and me in these very last days before the coming of Jesus. And this is the analysis, the, um, uh, the picture that Christ himself gives of us as a people. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 14, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Isn't that interesting that God knew? That Jesus knew that the church in the end of time would be a church that would be indifferent and neutral in a religious crisis. He knew. This didn't take him by surprise. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but you're not cold and you're not hot. What what am I going to do with you? Well, he's going to do a most beautiful thing. Because he offers to you and to me the most precious gift that he could ever offer. I want you to take notice of this. Verse 18. These are the words of Jesus. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyself that you may see. Jesus has for his church, Jesus has for you and for me, three precious gifts. And these precious gifts, my friends, when we accept them and embrace them and experience them, will enable us to be impacted over and over again. This will enable us to retain a spiritual experience that will not be neutral or indifferent in a time of crisis. And I want to quickly look at these three gifts. The first gift that he promises is that is gold refined in the fire. Now, what is gold refined in the fire? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, and you can write it down, but I'll just quote it here uh, for time's sake. But in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, it says the following, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the gold that is tried in the fire is our faith that is tested, okay? It's our faith that is tested. Now, you might think that when trouble comes in your life, when challenges and and a darkness seems to envelop you in your Christian experience, you may think, you know, at that time, how do I get out of this? Or, Or where is God in all of this? My friends, the Bible says that if you at that time exercise faith in God, It is like gold tried in the fire because your faith, it's more precious than gold. And so when you exercise faith, 
You are stepping out of indifference. Amen? You exercise faith because if you don't exercise faith, your faith is going to come weak. It's just like exercising the muscles. If you don't use your muscles, if you don't exercise your muscles, you're going to be weak. So it is spiritually. You, in order to remain strong, in order to continue having that impact of the gospel, you must exercise spiritual muscles. And the spiritual muscle that you need to exercise is faith. Amen? It's faith. Okay, now let's look at the the second gift here in Revelation chapter 3. We receive gold that is tried in the fire. And by the way, it's a gift from God. It's not something that you must, oh, I'm going to, how do I get this faith? I'm going to try to muster it myself. No, it's a gift from God. It's a gift from Jesus. Just accept it and allow him to work that faith in you. And then the second gift, what is the second gift? It white garments that you may be clothed. Now, listen to what it says in Isaiah 61, verse 10. You can write this down. I'm going to quote it here. Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, so what, is the, what are the white garments? They are garments of salvation, right? A robe of righteousness. But what does it say there in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 that we are to rejoice in this salvation, My friends, if you want to be impacted over and over again, if you do not want to lose that impact, you know what you need to do? You need to rejoice. Amen? You need to praise God. You need to be over and over impacted by what he has done for you. Praise him. Thank him. Worship him. And in doing so, you are keeping the impact. Amen? You're retaining that spiritual strength. You know, Christ does not want us to become indifferent to what he has done for us. Christ came down, he lived a perfect life, and he died on Calvary for you. Christ was everything but indifferent to our circumstances. Amen? How can we become indifferent to him? I want to share a short story here. I, about seven years ago, um, I traveled to Kenya, uh, East Africa, with um, a team of, of, of workers, and we were going to have a mission trip in this country of Africa. It was my first time in a third world country. And uh, preparing for this trip, we didn't really know how to prepare because um, we've, we've never been there and we don't really know what to expect other than what we have read and heard from others. And I had this friend um, from Kenya through which we actually had this invitation to go down there. And he had a house down there. And he said, you can stay in my house while you have these meeting series. And, and when you do this health and Bible work and classes, you can live at the place where, that I have there. And um, so I would have email contact with him. And I would write to him and I would say, uh, you know, we're coming with so and so many people. Are you sure that you have enough rooms in your house? And he would write back and he'd say, everything's okay. And I would write again, and I would say, you know, we're coming with so and so many people. Do you have enough, uh, you know, bathrooms and toilets? And is everything taken care of? Um, is there enough furniture? And, and every time I would get the same response to my emails, everything's okay, brother. And so the day comes, and we, as a team, we get on the plane, and we, I can see a couple of people here that were on that trip, so you, you can testify that this is true. We are on that trip, and we land in Kenya, and we land there in Nairobi, and guess what? Not everything was okay. As a matter of fact, the house was still being built. It wasn't even finished. And the rooms were empty. There was no furniture. There was no bathroom, no toilet. There was one hole in the ground. We were 15 people. Amen. 
You have to know when to say amen and when to remain silent, okay? <laughs> and, so, and so I thought to myself, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I mean, this is terrible. And we come to a room where I'm going to stay, and it's just, it's just like, like concrete ground. And we have this thin mattress. And I'm like aching over my body as I'm laying there. And you know what? Because the house was not finished and they were using this cement, it seemed to attract these little red ants. And so we had all these ants in the room and my wife and I are laying there on this concrete floor with this thin mattress, aching bodies. And you know, these ants, they just decided to make a highway right across our body. And so during the night, they would like bite us. Oh, it was terrible. We'd be bitten. And there was no window in that room. There was just some bars. And the person next door, which had obviously no money, but just enough money to buy a TV set, turned his house into a local cinema and during the night would play all these movies. And so we would be kept awake all night with these movies and these ants running across our body, biting us and pain in our bodies. And then one night, just before we were going to move from that place to another place, early in the morning hours, three men with machete swords break into our house, move through all the rooms and rob us. And they came into my room and, and by God's grace, I slept and I didn't wake up. And uh, I don't know what I would do if I woke up. So God laid a deep sleep on, on my wife and myself. And they, and they took all our belongings and they left. And so there we are sitting together. We got together as a team, sitting together. What are we going to do? And there's one thought going through my mind. Let's get on the first plane back home. This was my foreign experience. Like, you know, you have this dream about foreign missions like John Mark listening to Paul. Wow, that looks great. You know, people being baptized and you see all these smiling people going into the water. You know, they've all brushed their teeth with Colgate. Beautiful smile. Like, I want to sign up for that. I want to go there. And then you actually go and you get a very different kind of experience. And here we are robbed, robbed of our belongings. Like nothing left and we're sitting together discussing what we're going to do. And, you know, I remember one person in our team says something I will never forget. He said, you know what? I think now, just in a little way, in a little bit, we are able to understand a little better what Jesus went through when he came to this earth. He gave up heaven for us. The beauties and riches and glory of heaven he deemed not worthy to see us suffer. And so he comes down and becomes one of us. What do you say? He was not indifferent to us. How can we be indifferent to those around us? You know, and, and through the encouragement of others around uh, me and my team, you know, we, we decided to continue. And I can tell you, and this is a different story, but I can tell you that what came after that was one of the most precious experiences that I cherish in my work as an evangelist. We actually moved to Nairobi after that. I traveled to Nairobi and I was planned to speak there. Now, listen to this. My Bible was taken from me. My computer was taken from me. My notes were taken from me. I, could, I did not have my PowerPoint anymore. I did not have my notes. I I didn't even have my Bible, my precious Bible, in which I had written all these experiences and dates, and, and it was gone. So I borrowed a little pocket Bible, and I get up, and I have no notes, no PowerPoint, and God just imbued me with his spirit. And I, to his glory, people responded to that message. And this is some of the most precious experience in ministry that I've had. Because when we become dependent on God, he pours out everything. And so in order for you and for me to be impacted by the gospel, you must exercise faith and you must rejoice in the salvation 
that God has wrought for you. And finally, but not least, the third point, back to Revelation chapter 3. This is our last point here. Look at what it says, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes. Anoint your eyes with eye self that you may see. We need the anointment of Christ in order to perfectly see and discern what is right and what is wrong. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. My friends, we need spiritual discernment. And the eye self allows us to have the spiritual discernment. And when we have that spiritual discernment, we will also not only discern things around us, we will discern our own condition. And we will discern that on many occasions we have become immune and indifferent to the gospel. We have received that flu shot. We will become aware of that. And in doing so, we will return to God and humble ourselves. And he will impart to us these gifts as he has promised. What do you say? And he will renew your spiritual experience. Not only will he renew it, but he will allow you to retain it. You know what Jesus says in John 15? He says, abide in me. Abide in me. So this morning, what I want to appeal to you is to think about your life right now. Think about your spiritual experience right now. Are there areas in your spiritual experience where you have become indifferent and neutral to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are there areas in your life where you consider that you are in danger of becoming immune to the gospel? If you feel that danger, can you raise your hand right now? I raise my hand. I feel that danger. I mean, I'm not, I see all things happening around me. We're living in a world in which we are bombarded with all kinds of invitations to be part of this and part of that and to watch this and to listen to this and to go there and to do that and do that. And my friends, these things can, can cause us to become immune to what matters most. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you have, if you have that feeling that, you know, uh, I'm in danger to become immune to the gospel, or some of you, frankly, you just say, I am immune at this point, but I want it no more. And maybe there's something that I've said in the course of this message that, 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 that you just desire that, that first love, that, that first impact to return in your life. And so I'm going to make a more specific appeal here. If there is something that you know of, something in your life that you know is causing your indifference, because remember, in the days of Elijah, it doesn't happen overnight. But what did the spirit of prophecy say? It happened, do you remember the word? Gradually. And you recognize that it's happened to you gradually, but you want to take a stand now. You want this conference to be a turning point. How beautiful that we're about to go into a new year, 2013. And you know, your resolutions mean so much more than resolutions of people around you that don't know God. You know, I'm not going to smoke anymore. I'm not going to watch that anymore. And you know, one week goes by and they do it again. Resolutions. But my friends, a resolution is powerful when it's made in a covenant with Jesus. And you, because of what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago on the cross, he gives you power. So it's not just a promise from your side. It's a covenant with which he says, I will do it in you. And you realize you're indifferent. 
You realize you have become immune to the gospel, but you want to say, I know what it is. I've identified that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you and you want to do something with it. Will you stand if that describes you? You know what it is and you want to do something with it. You want more than anything else the gold tried in the fire. You want more than anything else the white raiment. You want more than anything else the eye self that will cause you to see. And I want to invite those for special prayer that say, I need special prayer to overcome this because I'm not going to be able to do it alone. I would invite you to come forward as we have a special prayer right here for you. Say, I need special prayer for this, what I'm dealing with. Just come forward as we're going to close with a word of prayer together. You're not on your own. Jesus is with you. And he has promised to empower you. Let's kneel together as we pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you this morning for your goodness towards us, that you died for us while we were yet sinners. That you take that enormous step that is uncomprehendable for us, that you left heaven and all its riches and glory, and that you came down and was born in a manger, lived the life of a human being, and became obedient even unto death, the ignominious death of the cross. Lord, at this point, we want to thank you and praise you for what you have done. Lord, as we hear about the cross, may we not become immune to this message. We've heard it, but may it have an impact upon us, not some emotional high, but an abiding trust in you. Help us to abide in you, Lord, to rest and be assured that what you have started, you will also complete. And so, Lord, I pray for every person that has stood to their feet, that every person has come forward and knelt in prayer. Lord, there are things that you have reminded us of, the Holy Spirit has impressed us with, that have caused us to gradually move away from you, that have caused us to no longer be on offense, but on defense, to not respond to you, to become indifferent and neutral. But Lord, we want this conference, this moment to be a turning point. Not because of some commitment that we make in our own strength, but because of a covenant that you have promised. And so what you have begun, please complete in us, work through us. And I pray that that whatever it is, in, the, in, in each of us, Lord, we, we don't need to tell each other, but we tell you right now, Lord, you know what it is. You know what it is. Oh, Lord, please remove this in our life. And may we become yours and yours alone. Thank you so much, Lord, for this gift, the gift of salvation. And we rejoice in you this morning. And we praise you and thank you. Lord, Thank you that you know us. May we know you. We pray all these things in the wonderful and beautiful name of Jesus. Let everyone say. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.